What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 57. I'm Chris Webster. On today's show, I talk to Dr. Alan Garfinkel about his career in exploring the rock art of California and beyond. Let's dig a little deeper. Hey, everybody. Before we get started with the show, this is Chris Webster jumping in. This was actually the first episode that I did live on Carson City Community Media, KNVC 95.1 FM. You can find them at knvc.org. And you can listen live on Fridays when I record this from 12 to 1 p.m. Pacific time. And that is knvc.org forward slash listen dash live. I did this interview with Alan. There was a malfunction in their recording equipment, and we missed the first, I think, 10 minutes or so. But that was really getting into Alan's career, how he got into archaeology and rock art and things like that. Uh, We're going to pick up the conversation when I'm directly talking to him about rock art. So take a listen to this. Enjoy. And uh, thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And again, don't forget to tune in live on Fridays. Hopefully I'm still doing this show if you're listening way in the future. Uh, knvc.org forward slash listen dash live. Now on to the show. You mentioned Rock Art Nevada. You know, for our Nevada listeners, this station is based out of Carson City, Nevada. So those those listening down here are probably listening live on, on 95.1 FM. And some of the oldest, well, so what I've heard so far is the oldest rock art ever dated uh, in North America. And that's a whole separate subject is the dating of rock art. So this is the stuff that's actually been Dated by trusted methods, um, dated are the Winnemucca petroglyphs north of Reno here, actually kind of northeast of Reno, uh, and they date to at least ten thousand five hundred years old. Now we can we can talk about dating of rock art a little bit later, uh, and and some of the problematic things uh, related to that. But something you mentioned earlier, I wanted to say, you know, you were talking about looking at people's history uh, through rock art and how it's uh, it's looking at a you're looking at these images. I mean, to put it in modern terms. You're looking at like almost an alien civilization's Instagram feed and trying to figure out what it means, <laughs> because they're they're alien to us in that in that we don't know how we're trying to figure out as archaeologists how were they thinking back then? What caught co- not 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 only what did they make, but what caused them to make these things? How did they interact and relate to the landscape? And I was just listening to a different podcast on the way down here, talking about. Uh, different animals and things as they relate to the early uh, ancient Maya and trying to figure out, you know, well, 
how did they do these things? And, and they had a very different relationship with like animals and things like that. You know, if a lizard were sitting here on the desk in this radio studio, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. You know, I'd probably be dealing with this lizard. But back then, eh, it's part of your thing. It's part of who you are. It's part. It's just there. You live with it. So we see these rock art depicting animals and, and things like that. And it's just, it's it's hard to look at and interpret that stuff through you can't look at it through a modern lens. You have to try to put yourself in the mindset of the person or people that that created that, which is, I think, the most incredibly difficult task that archaeologists have. You know, we're Western industrial people. We're modern people who are interested in. You know, we we don't we are sort of divorced ourselves from the natural world. Mm-hmm. We get our we get our food and wrapped up in nice packages or in cans <laughs> or at. Uh, at the grocery or at the fast food store, um, we, when we see animals in the wild, it's a mystical, supernatural experience for us, and we get very excited about it because we don't see that that often. Mm-hmm. Um, we also live a very sheltered life because we live in houses or apartments or other circumstances where we we have uh, you know our environment cooled or heated when we need to. We um, don't have to worry about other things that these indigenous people did in their in the way that they did, since they they were always uh, on the, living on the edge mm-hmm. and affected by the natural world tremendously, and their understanding of this world is very very different from ours because to them their religion their cosmology their world view was intimately interfingered with the way in which they conducted their affairs, their traditional life ways, their, their way to uh, acquire food. Um, all of that was seen as one package when uh, they conducted their affairs on the landscape and moved about the land, which they did, timing those movements into uh, the relationships of where they're, where they key food sources was the animals and the plants. This was all done um, in a way that was that was sort of uh, connected to the cosmos. They mm-hmm. had an understanding of different animals and plants and other things that we see as inanimate, meaning not living. Everything to them was alive. All of things had energy and focus and power and to their eyes, the natural world was part and parcel of their religious world. They had deities that that lived in these places, and they had, uh, you know, animal-human figures that prominently played into their understanding of the universe, which is a little different from us. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, now that we've 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 established. Uh, we talked about rock art, and we're getting into it now. I think it's time to to bring it back just a little bit and talk about some definitions in case in case people are a little bit confused sometimes because there are different types of rock art. Um, I, I want to possibly, if we have time, touch on what something you just alluded to, which is kind of a lateral field to the study of rock art, which is archaeoastronomy. And archaeoastronomy doesn't just deal with rock art; it deals with all kinds of things, rock alignments, and obviously, you know, a whole bunch of different things, not just what the typical concept of rock art is. So before we move on, what is the typical concept of rock art? How do you define rock art 
you know, it's like the flame test from, uh, from Alan Alda is like, how do you explain rock art to a four year old? <laughs> what is the simplest terms? Um, what we're talking about when we talk about the terms of rock art are typically, for the most part, prehistoric, meaning before recorded history, before it's a preliterate expression in which Native people, Indigenous people, either painted upon or pecked into the rocks imagery that may be abstract or may be naturalistic or even representational. So these are the panels or elements, and it's a kind of a unwritten, preliterate communication style that has been employed for Native people, Indigenous people all over the world. Um, what we found that there's rock art as old as even 100,000 years ago that they found that the Neanderthals were doing. They painted the rocks and they found abstract imagery. And then I would say about almost 40, 50,000 years ago in France, we have some absolutely superb realistic imagery of animals that uh, Picasso ooed and awed about and said, we haven't learned anything. <laughs> <You know? laughs> because the native painters there were so extraordinarily fantastic mm-hmm. in the way in which they rendered their images. So we have things we call pictographs, which are paintings. We have things that are called petroglyphs, which are drawings. The uh, drawings on rocks, at least in the, in the deserts, the places where we have rocks, in areas that are wet and hot and that form a varnish hmm. sort of a, a brownish, bluish, blackish overlay of veneer. The Native people found that they could peck through that veneer, that thing we call desert varnish, which is a, really an iron manganese coating that forms. It's a, we believe it's a biological organism of sorts. And if you peck through that, that darkened surface, you reveal heart rock, and the heart rock is light, and you can make a picture. Um, And those pictures last for 10, maybe 15,000 years. um, They're well-preserved. The process continues. They darken over time. But because of the um, difference in texture or form or contour, you can even see the uh, completely revarnished panels that are in the order of 10,000 years old. And hmm. we have those there in Nevada. We have those in the American Southwest, and uh, certainly in parts of California as well. So you can walk out into various places, either state parks or national monuments and other places, and see rock art, and you can see what people were thinking about or how they were rendering their views of the world literally thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. which is quite amazing. Yeah. But from a terminology standpoint, what, and I'm not sure I actually even know the answer to this question. What is the preferred term for a petroglyph? So something that's been carved, engraved, or pecked, you know, where material's been removed. What's the preferred term for a petroglyph that's been painted? So they put pigment inside of it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> what do you call that, Alan? <laughs> you know, call it a 
call, call it those Michigan uh, people. They, be, <laughs> they, they painted it and then they pecked it or they pecked it and they painted it. Right. And it's, and there's a interfingering of those two kinds of rock drawings. It happens rarely, but it happens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I guess you'd call it a Pictopetroglyph or a petropictograph. <laughs> why, why, why do you think that there's the, the real dichotomy between the two types? I mean, I understand that uh, in some areas you might not be able to um, to get into the rock as well. Maybe it's too hard. Maybe they don't have the right materials, something like that. And in other areas, maybe the the material for the coloring for the pigments that they would use is not available. So they just, you know, create their petroglyphs. Why do you, But why do you think, because we don't have a term for this, which tells me that you're right. This doesn't happen very often. Why the cultural? Is it cultural or is it technological? Why the split? The absolute split between pictographs and, and petroglyphs? Do you think? You know, it's a, it, it's a, that's an interesting question, and it leads up to some of the things I did in my own research area. We find that in the far southern Sierra, there's a there's an indigenous group called Tabatalabal. I know that's a tongue <laughs> twister means pinion pine nut eaters in their native language. Mm-hmm. Uh, linguistically, they spoke a language with Uto Aztecan. So they're in the far southern Sierra, south fork of the Kern River, Kern Plateau, and they painted. They just painted. Hmm. Um, they didn't do petroglyphs, they didn't do rock drawings. They, um, they worked on a uh, granite canvas because, as people may be aware, the Sierra Nevada is an enormous block of granite. But interestingly enough, other native California Indians that lived in the same lithological or environmental sphere, same kinds of stones, same kinds of environment, they pecked their pictures into the rock. They didn't paint them. <laughs> right. So, so it seems like it's almost like a cultural choice. Now, one of the interesting things is, if you're in an area and you know about the historic natives and you find a singular expression of rock art, you might want to argue that there's that there's uh, less data or less information to support the uh, prehistoric migrations or the population replacements that we believe happened often throughout prehistory. And actually in that area where I was talking about the far Southern Sierra and that hard-to-pronounce pinion pine nut eaters Indians, mm-hmm. all we did was paint mm. and... Paintings are there, and they continue back. And there seems to be a um, relationship between the antiquity and the longevity, sustainability of a particular culture, almost indefensibility. They got there. They they found a place that they liked. They defended it, and they just continued, and they didn't let anybody else in. It was a rather attractive area. Now... In other areas that perhaps are even less attractive, we find a whole other story. We're out in the desert. We might find different uh, styles of rock art, both both pecked petroglyphs and paintings. You might even find different styles of paintings. And it just shows a far more fluid and culturally diverse set of activities that were nested in that particular environment. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Now back to the show. Let me remind everybody, the phone number here is 775-515-4141 if you'd like to ask a question or have a comment or uh, really anything. And just talk to and keep, myself. And keep those donations coming. <laughs> those cards and letters coming in. We only have about five more minutes. On our <laughs> That's what it feels like, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I don't have to give out a phone number when I'm doing a podcast, so it's it's a little weird. <laughs> Thanks for putting up with me, Chris. That's right. That's right. All right. So. We mentioned dating of rock art a little bit earlier. Um, what are before we get into some of the problems? What are some of the ways that we can date the rock art? Because one, one obviously one of the things that we learn from the rock art and that helps us try to, I guess, interpret what it means that we're looking at if we if we could even get to that level is how old is it? What 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 right. people are we talking about? You know, where are they in the development of this continent or whatever continent they're on? You know, to to help us understand that. So what are what are some of the ways that we can date rock art? You know, one of the hardest things about rock art was its difficulty in being dated. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the areas that made it sort of a, a poor stepchild to conventional archaeology. Archaeology is uh, first and foremost about dating. And the first step in sort of this hierarchy that our friend David Hurst Thomas um, talks about in his book on the way to do archaeology, step one dated <laughs> and, if, and if you can if you can date it then you can talk about the kinds of activities are represented mm-hmm. and then if you talk about the kinds of activities represented you date it then you might be able to uh, reconstruct the ethnic identity the ethnic affiliation of the people and at the highest levels we talk about culture change and and uh, hypotheses about the way in which cultures, uh, both continued and also were transformed or in some places were uh, collapsed. So dating is step one. How do we date rock art? Well, not very well. <laughs> we, um, we try to do it by subject matter. If we see something that could be a hinge point or a temporally sensitive, some sort of a thing that we know has a particular independent way of dating it, that's helpful. If you see a horse, you men on horseback, well, there were no horses in America until uh, after the Pleistocene they became extinct, and then they didn't come back again until time when Euro-Americans and Hispanic people came in, and they brought the beasts here, mm-hmm. and also they bought, brought in the steers and cows and other animals that were used for grazing and for for meat and also their um, fiber. So that's how we know how things are historic, and we have a you know a benchmark about that. When we get to prehistoric, we look at the technology. We know that early on in time, prehistoric people were using darts and something called an otlodel, which is a Yiddish-Tekken word for a dart thrower or a dart throwing board. Those were weighted, 
and they're shown in um, rock art. They depict them, and they also, uh, fortunately, also depict the dart points themselves. And if those morphologies, if those outlines and forms are distinctive enough, we have found that those have uh, temporal sensitivity. In other words, you can date them. You have a block of time that we know certain styles of these dart points are. If we see bows and arrows, we know when the bow and arrow was introduced. We know that those are more recent. Mm -hmm. Additionally, we do it through looking at the superimposition, the layering of imagery, one after the next after the next. You can look at a thing called seriation. Seriation relates to as, as the style of something changes, it goes through sort of a, a bell curve, and if we have a relative date, we can overlap those bell curves and we can see how something begins in a slight way, becomes more and more prominent, and then declines through time, and is replaced by something else. Mm -hmm. That's called seriation. We can also do it from the uh, relative patination or the darkened desert varnish on the imagery themselves. We know that something that is completely re-varnished probably dates about, I would say, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand years ago. How, how much? Takes, I'd say seven to ten thousand years yeah. ago. Yeah. How much did that depend on, like, environmental factors? You know, the environment doesn't really matter that much. Okay. Um, if you if you've gone through and actually had that desert varnish re re upped in the amount so it completely hides the imagery, we're looking at something that's very very old. Mm -hmm. We have we have dated them through other experimental means. We found some ways to actually go there and actually measure the trace elements that exist in this desert varnish, both within the rock images as well as the background and you can quantify the amount of manganese the trace elements and we can independently correlate that to environmental change we can do it through what we call radiocarbon dating of course radiocarbon dating is one way to, to date organics and so if we have paint we can hope and i've done this we can gather up chips of paint and if there is a binder in there of plant or animal fat, we can get a date on that too. So there's a variety of ways that we can do this. We also look for um, for different types of animals as well. Sometimes in certain parts of the world, certain types of animals have become extinct or only existed during certain periods of prehistory in the past. And those are good keys, good, good uh, benchmarks, hallmarks for certain chronological periods. I wonder... That leads me to a question about superimposition. So, um, you know, often, well, I wouldn't say often, I don't know, maybe you can say often, but a lot of times you can see rock art where uh, something was carved over the top of something else for various reasons, which we can we can get into. But uh, I imagine if something were, you can prove that it was over the top of something else and that something that was put over the top of it was something like an animal that has gone extinct, you can at least start to look at a time frame and you start rule other time frames out and say, well, it has to be before this because this went extinct at this date. And, you know, or maybe it's a technology that wasn't available that's superimposed over it. So then you can start nailing down a time frame then, right? In the old world, in, um, in Europe, 
when we're looking at megafauna, they have a nice bracket and can immediately know that we're looking at, mm. you know, material that is tens of thousands of years old and may date to a certain time when those beasts were popular. In the Americas, they have found examples of megafaunal depictions um, on rock art or on portable rock art, and those have been controversial. <laughs> so, but if they are authentic, they would, of course, date to at least uh, 12,000 or so years ago mm-hmm. when those beasts roamed the Americas. We're talking about mammoths. We're talking about the um, large animals such as mastodons. We're talking about, uh, you know, the uh, cats, the um, ones that are what they call the, uh, the faunal remains that were part of the paleo. We're also talking about those uh, giant ground sloths and other animals. So all these megafaunal animals that existed and uh, their associated depictions would be a bit of a smoking gun for us. Mm -hmm. What about when we're talking about really old rock art? Uh, It seems to be, uh, in my studies, that you find... You find in certain in some areas that there's uh, a little more abstract shapes with rock art versus straight up animals and you know recognizable shapes. I would say recognizable to us. The abstract shapes were probably recognizable to the people who made them, you know, thirty, forty thousand years ago. But uh, can you talk a little bit about the the style of the rock art as an indicator of of age or some sort of I don't know intellectual advancement? Is that the right word to say? There's a whole uh, perspective on this matter, and uh, even a recent book that was done presenting the hypothesis theory that the oldest rock art in the Americas, and possibly elsewhere, was abstract, curvilinear, rectilinear, things that uh, were non-representational, non-naturalistic, and there seems to be something to that. So we're talking about in the Americas, something, let's say, between ten and 15,000 years ago, and in the old world, uh, on the order of tens, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands hmm. of years ago with respect to the Neanderthals. So the earliest rock art, even in the Americas, seems to be predominantly abstract. But that being said, um, there are images that date to what's called the Paleo-Indian period, the earliest period that we have substantial information about, let's say, what, maybe twelve to 13,000 or mm-hmm. even 14,000 years ago, where we do find depictions of animals. Right. They're simple, they're outlined, but they're there. And so there is a taste of this uh, realism, this naturalism that occurs. Then what we find, at least in, in some quarters, is that the earliest rock art seems to be done in a much more graceful, fine, uh, artistically complex way, and almost uh, rather than evolving into a more sophisticated, detailed, and intricate way, it seems it goes the opposite way. It goes to a more simplified, almost like a visual shorthand, rather than the other way. So if you're looking at the evolution of style, you have to keep in mind 
that sometimes the earlier renditions are more complex, uh, more intricate, uh, more finely and artistically engineered than the later material. And then we also see that there's different ways and different emphases that happen. The earliest material in the rock art world, both in the old world and in the new, seems to have had a much more of a earth mother or feminine emphasis. Mm-hmm. In other words, you find that the animal humans, the deities that are being represented are more often of the female gender and the male gender seems to be less prominent. That changes with time and the male gender becomes a more dominant element and the uh, earlier, I call them Pachamama, which is a Peruvian word for sort of earth mama, Uh, deity, um, seems to go into a less prominent mode. Hmm. Does that help? That does. That does. Uh, I'm trying to figure out, it's interesting to me, uh, the whole dating of of rock art, because when you talk about, even in the Americas, and we go back, let's just be generous and say 10 to 15,000 years, and say, you know, we, we start here with the more abstract styles, but then you go over to Europe and other parts of the world where there's a longer continuous history. You go back tens of thousands of years. You would think the people that came here, and this is a much larger question, I know, but you would think the people that came here may would have may have had that that knowledge and experience and brought it along with them as they're as they're traveling to here from various places and, and living along the way. And, and why would we, why would the earliest depictions of rock art in this country be abstract if it was already, I guess, progressing along past that in the places where they presumably came from. Any thoughts on that? You know, I've, I've thought about that quite a bit. People have asked me that question before. Mm-hmm. I don't really have an answer. I, I don't. I don't actually understand the cultural trajectory or how that happened. There's other similar questions like that um, when. When we see the first substantial expression of population in the Americas, and we call it Clovis, it seems to have budded up in the New World without any ancestry, without any previous, uh, you know, information, with any previous, uh, you know, uh, how would you call it, without without any sort of uh, direction or genealogy. It right. didn't have, it just sprang full-blown and was a uh, a particular expression that exists only in the Americas. It, it wasn't found anywhere else. So maybe the expression of rock art here began in a whole different way mm-hmm. with a different set of cultural engines and reasons and a different set of sort of expertise and was reinvented independently. Hmm. That's interesting. We didn't have that kind of genealogy, you know, descendancy to bring together the artistic credential of those who did such remarkable work in the old world. Mm-hmm. The new world was different. 
nobody was living here. <laughs> right. And and that's very odd. Yeah. The rest, the rest of the world was populated, and about 15,000 years ago, people show up, and there's no, no one in, in the Americas. How can that be? I don't know, but it was. Right. Okay. Well, we are... Getting somewhat close to the end of the program, uh, I'll remind everybody, in case you want to call in, I know this is a new show and we're, we're still building an audience, but in case you're listening and want to call in, 775-515-4141 is the phone number. Uh, you can also tweet uh, at ARCPODNET, A-R-C-H-P-O-D-N-E-T. Hopefully I will see that before the end of the show if you do. Uh, and you can email me, Chris, at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. So... Alan, let's talk about a few resources and ways people can interact themselves with rock art, because the great thing about archaeology is it's generally out there for everyone to see, with a few exceptions, uh, notably uh, China Lake, which we'll talk about as well. <laughs> but uh, why don't you talk first? I've got some notes here for some things I want to mention that you've been involved with um, so people can can learn from it. One of the things is the Talking Stone video. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we. Uh, I was honored to with an Emmy and Oscar Award cinematographer. We spent four years doing a documentary film, runs for about a, an hour, and we released that on PBS and distributed worldwide to the Bradshaw Foundation. They're a platform for rock art studies throughout the world. And in something they call their American Archive, they publicized my work in what's called the Coso Range of Eastern California which has the, uh, some of the greatest densities of rock art in the entire Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. So that particular documentary film is available either through the Bradshaw Foundation or through a nonprofit organization that I have helped to form called the California Rock Art Foundation. So either, either one of those platforms you can pick up and buy a copy. Um, or if you, would, if, you, if you wish to learn more about this kind of subject, of course, they can contact me personally. Right. Okay. And that leads me because part of, I think, where that was filmed um, was in the Coso region of um, eastern, really kind of southeastern uh, California, central southeastern California, and the Mojave Desert area. Let's just leave it at that. So uh, part of it was filmed there. And uh, Alan, you've been out there a lot. Um, I worked out in that area a bit with you, Alan. And um, uh, so the thing that we're talking about is China Lake Naval Weapons Center. And there is some fantastic rock art there. Why don't you talk a little bit about what what can be seen there and then how, because you can actually get there. It's a uber secure naval military installation, but there are ways to get on and see the rock art. So tell yeah. us what tell us what China Lake is and then how we can go see that. But China Lake is the largest military installation in the entire United States. Yeah. It's got a million acres. A place called uh, China Lake Naval Weapons Center is one way to call it. It's in a town called Ridgecrest, and it's one of the most secret places on Earth, in the essence that uh, this is where the government, the uh, United States government, tests and develops the drone technology that kills our enemies. Mm-hmm. And so it's not an easy... Uh, facility to gain access to, but through the California Rock Art Foundation, through the Matarango Museum, and other ways, we sponsor tours and also deep dives, educational seminars that uh, allow people access to one of the largest concentrations of rock art that exists on that base, 
There's a mile-long canyon that has, I don't know, 10, 15,000 individual instances of rock art, much of it naturalistic, so you can look at it and say, I know what I'm looking at. These are bighorn sheep. These mm-hmm. are men with men that have bows and arrows. These, there's a dog. There's a mountain lion, what have you. So that is one way that an interested person of the general public, if they contact California Rock Art Foundation, they can attend one of our seminars, one of our field trips, and gain access. Um, it's the kind of place that once you see it once, uh, I know for me, I, it never left my consciousness. I continued to think about it for decades after the fact and had to revisit it after I uh, found out that I was able to reconnect with some of my earlier adventures and was able to continue my research interests. Yeah, it's an amazing place. I was able to go out there once, of course, with you and the rest of our crew when we were working on a project out there three and a half years ago now. And you're right. I mean, it's just such a, there's so much there, um, you know, thousands and thousands of, of panels, we call it, with different uh, different images on them. And it's just it's just so much to take in. And, and I'm not even sure we've, uh, we haven't even really archaeologically taken it all in, have we? No. Yeah. There's so much. So many mysteries and so many ongoing questions about the nature of that rock art record that they continue to befuddle us. It's a mm-hmm. tremendous mystery. Here you have foragers, hunter-gatherers, simple indigenous people that only amounted to maybe at most a couple hundred people that lived in this region, about a hundred and more square miles, and yet they produced this fantastic rock art record over thousands and thousands over the millennia. And there's no less than 100,000 individual images that exist in that small little area, which is one of the greatest rock art treasures in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, again, it's a fantastic place. And, and uh, check out the California Rock Art Foundation and the, uh, and the, the, the tours are done through the Matarango Museum, which is right there in Ridgecrest. So as Alan, I think mentioned, so it's uh it's pretty great. <laughs> Hey everyone, Chris Webster here again uh, for our final ad break, and I just wanted to tell you about WildNote. Full disclosure, I am a CRM sales specialist for WildNote, so if you're into archaeology and, quite frankly, biology, environmental, honestly anything where you record data, then check out wildnoteapp.com. You can always hit me up for a demo. I'll show you how to use the software, any new features that we have, and check out all that, and that is at digtech-llc.com forward slash wildnote. Again, check out WildNote for all your data collection needs. We've got brand new pricing, really good enterprise pricing, and really good monthly pricing as well for businesses really of any size. Again, wildnoteapp.com. Check it out today. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Now back to the show. There's also some some other tours that you do as well outside of uh, the base and, and in some other areas. Maybe a little easier to access. We can talk about that. Yeah, we uh, take people on cultural tours, rock art journeys throughout California. We've gone into uh, Tomokani, which is the creation site of the native people in the Tehachapi Mountains, which has some remarkable paintings and rock drawings and archaeological sites. We've been up in the Central Valley um, in the country of the Yokuts, where we saw tremendously beautiful paintings on granite boulders. We did that, that tour as well. We've gone to Little Lake, 
which is part of the Coso Range as well. And we plan to actually visit the coast and view the uh, Chumash, who were some of the most elaborate hunter-gatherer cultures, some of the highest population densities, villages of a thousand or more people with a very complex socio-political organization, um, hierarchy where we had chiefs and, and inherited statuses and mm-hmm. specific cemeteries, etc. We're going to see the rock art there as well. So those are just some of the particular tours and you know experiences that we have available. Okay. And if you can't make it out to one of those tours, well, Alan has been, and I alluded to this in the, in the beginning of the show, uh, Alan and I have been creating, uh, I'm, I'm creating the platform. Alan's got all the content because he's the expert on this. <laughs> but if we've created a platform where you can attend uh, a live webinar uh, with Alan, and eventually you'll be able to also um, participate by uh, subscribing and, and watching the replay of these. Hopefully that's going to come in the first quarter here of this 2019 but for now, the webinar is live, and you uh, you can find it at arccert.black, A-R-C-H-C-E-R-T dot black. And right there on the front page when you log in is a calendar of events. And on January 22nd, uh, January 15th and January 22nd, so in a, in a week and a half and then in a few weeks, Alan's giving two more webinars. So, Alan, why don't you mention a little bit about what people can expect to hear uh, on those webinars. And, and before you do that, I'd like to mention too, you can have a chance to just chat with Alan. These are about an hour long. And then we have about an hour for questions and just conversation at the end. So it's a really intimate setting to to really get your questions answered and to learn a lot more about particular topics. So uh, let's talk about the first one, Alan. Um, you've titled it Amerindian Perspectivism, uh, Shamanism, Animism, and Indexical Animals. That sounds like a mouthful. What are they going to learn? A lot of times uh, people don't understand the nature of Native American religion. And um, so I decided to take sort of a deep dive into what they call the cosmology or the worldview of Native people. And it's something that uh, is of interest to me. What we find often is the same themes that are in world religion occur with Native religion. And if we begin to sort of pierce the veil and begin to study the nature of how people all over the world think about their natural environment, and the world they live in, you'll see that we're all the same. <laughs> right. We all care. We all care about things, you know, living, eating, our children, continuing <laughs> uh, in the generations, uh, protecting our peop- our people and our land, and uh, also leaving a legacy. And so all those inter- all those themes that have interfinger into the arts, styles, the rituals, ceremonies, the uh, sacred narratives, the, mytho- the mythology of the people. And uh, that's what these particular deep dives will be, is an exploration of those themes amongst Native Americans and how they all come together, both uh, symbolically and also with respect to the nature of their beliefs. Okay. And the one on the 22nd of January, uh, and these are these are both, and, and we're going to keep with this time frame until we can figure something else out, but uh, these are at 6 p.m. Pacific time, if you're listening to this uh, in Pacific time. And the next one on the 22nd is called Desert West Indigenous Cosmology, Layered Universe, Shamanistic Ancestor Deities, and Spiritual Multinaturalism. So, so what, what I'm going to talk about there is really the something that's much more focused, and that is the region of the Far West, which is... California, the Great Basin, and the American Southwest, 
and how there's a tremendous set of themes that relate to uh, very similar cosmological realms, a layered universe, sort of the celestial sphere, the heavens, the terrestrial land where people live, and the underworld, Mm -hmm. and how certain animals and colors are associated with those layers, and how that all works out and is intertwined into the religious beliefs, ceremonies, rituals, and sacred narratives of Native people. And one of my favorite things to talk about bighorn sheep. Absolutely. (laughs) Because because bighorn sheep seem to be ubiquitous in the rock art and in the cosmological realm of Native people of Eastern California, the Great Basin, and the American Southwest. And uh, that's something that's been a passion and an ongoing interest of mine for some time. Yeah. All right. Well, in the last two minutes here, is there anything you'd like to tell the audience uh, about rock art or the study of rock art or anything like that that we didn't already talk about? Well, if they want to get a hold of me, um, I can give them both my email address and my phone number. Yeah, and and your website, too. Yeah. So I have a personalized website, com. I also, uh, you can get an email to me at Avram, that's Alan Victor Randall, Alan Mary, Avram1952 at yahoo.com. Or you can even call me, 805-312-2261. I do answer my own phone, and I'm happy to entertain, (laughs) uh, you know, questions and answers or tell you a bit more about the kinds of work that I do. And um, it's always fun, fun to network. You never know how someone's interest might spawn a research project or open up my mind for another another avenue that might be beneficial. And I always like to bless people. Uh, <laughs> outreach is one of my specialties. All right. I mean, that's great because outreach is, uh, is what we're all about here. I feel like I feel like too many archaeologists are working in a void where they just get in this cycle of research, publication, you know, fieldwork, research, publication, fieldwork, you know, the, the whole thing, maybe not in this order, but uh, not enough people are, are speaking to the public about these things. Um, I do want to have a conversation. I've got to find someone to have a conversation about this with uh, on this show, but the Megan Fox show that I mentioned earlier called Legends of the Lost that came out in uh, December on the Travel Channel. It's a four-episode series, but she's an actress with an interest in archaeology. And I'm not saying she's the worst representative we have for the field, but it's just because it's on a show about these sorts of things on a, on a network does not mean that it's, uh, I don't know, real science or something like that. So we need more we need more things like this. So I appreciate you coming on, Alan, uh, to the show today. And, uh, and thank you very much. And again, yes. And again, uh, Check out Alan's resources. I'll have those in uh, on the Archaeology Show website, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. I'll have everything that we talked about linked over there uh, at some point in the next couple of weeks. So go ahead and check that out. In the meantime, uh, check out all the other things that we have going on over there as well. And uh, you can always call me uh, or email me, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You can find me on Twitter, uh, ArcheoWebby, A-R-C-H-E-O-W-E-B-B-Y, or the Archaeology Podcast Network, ArcPodNet. And you can find KNVC, KNVC underscore radio on Twitter. And this is KNVC 95.1 FM, Carson Community Media. And we're going to 
play some more episodes from the Archaeology Show next week and the week after that, and then we'll be live again in three weeks, and we'll take your questions. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.